what's going on dude i can't believe it it is friday august 20th already i feel like time is going by super quick uh welcome to the artist of data science data science happy hour super excited to have all of you guys here hopefully you got a chance to tune into uh the live session i did earlier this week on wednesday did a live session with uh or Lenchner. so for those of you catching this on the podcast make sure you head over to my linkedin page to catch the uh the interview that i did with or it's also going to be released on the podcast in um in just about a week or so so definitely tune into that also be sure to tune into the episode that i released today with uh, david benjamin who's the author of cracking complexity uh, which is a hell of a book absolutely love that book um it's uh free on audible prime or whatever it's called the premium subscription of audible so if you guys have that definitely look for for that book because uh, it's a great read great listen um super excited to have everybody here man shout out to uh shout out to all the friends vin what's going on tom what's going on albert tashi eric marina clint mikiko's in the house spencer what's going on russell how's it going man super excited to have all of you guys here i'm ready to get this office hour or rather happy hour kicked off um let's, let's do this man i've got a question i'm wondering um i've been thinking a lot you know about about planning a data science project right like typically when you're doing some type of project management or planning for some project you like to have these neatly kind of defined timelines like saying hey look by next tuesday at 4 30 p.m bob i'm gonna have the insights that you are looking for but i don't know if uh if that is the best way to work in in data science right um, i'm wondering if i can get you guys perspective on this when it comes to planning project planning project management in data science does this kind of uh predefined waterfall method work or do we need something a little bit more flexible and organic for lack of a better word just due to the exploratory nature of the uh, work that we do i'm gonna start with vin on this one to get his uh, perspective and then after that i'd love to hear from uh from Tom? Yeah, I think, <clears throat> so there's different types of data science. Some data science acts like a software development project. And so for shops like that, you can actually run Agile because really it's, it's leaning in that direction anyway. So you can run Agile, you can run Waterfall, you can run whatever you want to. You can make up, you know, you can run Docile. You can, you know, so you can run whatever the typical software development methodologies are. But then when you start getting into actual research and doing research, you need a totally different process to handle research because it doesn't go in a straight line. It's cyclical. Anytime you start doing iterative data gathering, you know, so even data engineering can be a cyclical process. And so that doesn't work with things like waterfall. And if you try to slap it into an agile framework, people want to give you these, you know, these tasks and items and say, okay, when's this going to be done? Well, I'm on iteration four, I'll let you know. And so that's, you know, it's a totally different process. And if you need to manage something like research, you have to go in a completely different direction. You have to have a gated process in place where you're not so much managing when will it be done as much as continually evaluating how much progress is being made and saying, okay, I like not only the amount of progress that's being made, but also the direction it's being made in. And you're making a financial decision to continue funding you know, a whole lot like the academic side works where, you know, do we continue to fund this project? And there's a committee that looks at it and says, okay, are we going to renew funding this year? 
And you really do the same thing. And that's a different type of project management framework. And businesses are slowly starting to understand they need it, but I haven't seen it implemented in a whole lot of shops yet. So does that tend to work better in like, like so you mentioned research versus you know, software development type of environment. Um, I, I have a naive question here, but how do we tell which type of data science team that we're on and how do we tell which, which is going to work for the thing that we are attempting to deliver on? Well, it depends on how certain you need to be about the, the actual solution, the model that you deliver. The more certain you need to be about it, you either go very, very simple model that's easy to explain and easy to understand. Or if you go the complex route, now all of a sudden, obviously you're going into the research route because you have to create experiments to validate whatever it is that you've built in that model. So you have the traditional model development lifecycle, but you have this additional validation to the front of it because the more complex the problems that you, that you end up solving for the business or for customers and the more complex solutions that you're forced into, because I'm not a huge fan of going complicated if you don't have to, but when you start getting forced into more complex solutions, if you, you need an experimental process, and that's really the cue of, okay, I'm doing experiments, I'm doing research, and that's something different. Thank you very much, Vin. Uh, for everybody that just uh, joined in, the opening question I, I uh, led here with was, what type of project planning, project management process makes the most sense for data science team? Uh, Vin was talking about two different kind of flavors of data science team. You got your research oriented team versus kind of a implementation deployment type of base team. Uh, and I really like those insights. Vin, thank you so much. Uh, let's go to, to Tom on this one. And then Makiko, I thought I saw you here. I'd love to hear from, from you if you are still around. Uh, Tom, go for it. And then, by the way, if anybody else has uh, questions on anything, please do let us know right there in the chat, whether you're in the Zoom call or joining us on uh, LinkedIn, YouTube, or Twitch, um, for the one person who watches on Twitch. Uh, Tom, go for it. Yeah, I love Vin's answer. And I just want to take a Tony Stark approach in the first Iron Man. Is it too much to ask for both? In other words, uh, after studying Dennis's book and listening to his videos, Dennis Rothman, it started to occur to me, wait a minute, uh, when we're building a machine learning pipeline, and we've got all our development mechanisms and we're trying different things, we're cycling through different models, but some of those models are more easy to use for explaining what's going on. It may not be the model we put in production, but that doesn't mean we can't still use that model to explain a lot of our discovery work. For example, I'm always using linear logistic progression. Uh, David Langer is always using decision trees and random force. Both of those can explain a lot more. You may not put them in production, but I tell you what, as soon as I've scaled my features and I've found out what features are most important, I'm running off to tell the business that right away. Oh, well, do you have a predictive model yet? No, but you can act on this data here. Now back to the bigger question. Did, uh, Greg and I even designed a talk together on this. It's business and data science collaboration and maximize return on data. And the big highlight in that talk, we show that it's really important to take your current business priorities and your current data assets and look for the intersections. And 
the strongest intersection point is where you have all the data and it's it's a high priority, but there may be higher business priorities. That's just a clue. Go collect more data assets until you have enough to do a good job. So that's just a thought. Now, my co-author on the book I'm writing, Guy Sankari, brilliant. I hope you're all following him. Guy Sankari, G-H-A-I-T-H. He really borrows a lot of wisdom from our software, software development gurus uh, with all their techniques and says, we need to leverage from their wisdom. Yes, we do things a bit differently, but that doesn't mean we completely throw out things. We modify what we need. So we're early in this data science age. Take the current wisdom, modify it. Don't feel completely stuck to it and use that wisdom that's already there. That, that's what I got to say. Um, thank you very much. Tom, the data gun. Uh, shout out to Monster Cat Silk for giving us the dope beats all day long. Uh, if you guys do not listen to that streaming channel on YouTube, oh my God, the beats are amazing. Uh, Mikiko, what about you? What do you think? All right. So I think my answer is going to be, I guess, kind of uh, a little bit dumb. But uh, in terms of like what process you should use for your project, I would say like look at culture and the process that of the team that you're going into. So if you're doing it individually, so if you're doing it individually and it's like a one-off project, like you can come up with whatever project management methodology that will work for you. But you know, the minute that you start trying to get that model like into production, um, you're gonna like, unless you're like that kind of like the full stack or the unicorn, like data scientist engineer, which, you know, not really supportive of the industry kind of forcing people to be one of everything. Um, unless you're one of those, right? Like at some point you're gonna have to come up, you're, you're, you're gonna bump up to like three teams. One is product, uh, basically going like, you know, is this a feature or something that is useful as valuable for the business? Um, secondly is engineering. Um, how do you get the model or, you know, the data science assets into production such that it can be used, whether it's internally for like forecasts or externally for like a recommendation feature um, and the third team you're going to kind of like run into potentially um, is like a uh, strategy or finance, essentially uh, money bags, like who carries that money. Um, so depending on the size of the company, it could be, you know, a very lean, small team of just engineers and like one PM who is like a product manager, product manager and a project manager. Um, you know, other times you can have like a very fully scaled system, right? So I'd say number one, it's if you're going into like a big company, uh, uh, try to adopt the system that they have because it's just a much harder fight, especially if you're coming in like at an IC or junior level. Um, you know, and secondly, like uh, what I've seen is that, you know, for some companies where they like have like the infra infrastructure and system, they'll treat it very much like agile. You know, some things you might kind of circle around like, you implement the model and then you decide like, or figure out it's just not working, right? So you got to go back to the drawing board, but the company still wants a feature. They still want to like recommend these products. They just might go about it a different way, you know, but like they have the pipeline infrastructure already set up, right? Um, but, you know, it could be a startup where they're kind of building it from scratch, right? Like ground up, you are, you know, number 10 person at startup, in your number one data scientist. Um, there, you know, you might just have to be a lot more flexible because you're kind of like building the plane as you're flying it. You know, very seat of your pants. You're you're gonna acquire some tech debt, 
you know, or whatever. Um, so you're just gonna have to sort of make it work. So I mean, that would by be my like my answer is, you know, wherever you go, especially if it's a bigger, more complex company, kind of figure out what they're doing already. See how you can plug into it. And if you do find areas to optimize, like, you know, just uh, work it in kind of gently, you know, and just, uh, you know, data science, team sport, right? Yeah, yeah. Usually favored methodologies are just flexible, right? That you can move. You got to be fluid and flexible. And then that agility part is a key. And like, the, I mean, agile, agile in the sense of just moving quick, falling down fast getting up even quicker. I don't want to say fail fast because that's so cliche, but damn it. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I'd, I'd love to actually hear from, uh, from, from Greg on this. I know you just joined Greg, but the uh, question I opened with was, um, was kind of along the lines of um, how do we manage our work as data scientists, right? Like, you know, typical project management likes to have defined scope, defined requirements saying, you know, next Tuesday, 4.30 p.m., have an insight for us, but it doesn't really work like that in, in data science, right? Um, I wonder, wonder what you think. Let me warn Greg that uh, I did mention our talk, Greg, but only briefly. Yeah, um, so I want to make sure I captured the, the essence of the question well. It's kind of like, um, how do you manage your day-to-day -day versus manage your strategic projects how do you well, quantify kind of, that well kind of i guess more so how do you how do you go about managing your entire i guess work as a data scientist right like we start up a project and we say all right cool like in two weeks we want to have this thing this thing that thing figured out and insights delivered and packaged and sealed um but the work that we do is really exploratory by nature so it's kind of hard to find that balance between wanting to deliver quickly while still exploring the data and, and making sure you've kind of left no stone unturned. Yeah. Um, so I think uh, you need to capture most of the task inside of a, a tracking tool and um, inside of the scoping phase, you want to make sure you tackle all the to-do list. And with that, you want to truncate it into uh, deliverables. I think you've answered that partially inside of the question itself is that you can never put a finite time uh, for data science projects because of, of the exploratory nature of it. So, but you have to hold yourself and your team accountable for delivering something. And with that, you have to have deliverables. So what I will call milestones with target dates. And these dates are not finite. They have to move as you evolve. The thing is you keep tracking your progress towards those deliverables. And if there are obstacles that prevent you from reaching these deliverables, you update them. And through that tracker, you're surfacing these obstacles and pulling the right team members to help you remove these obstacles and move towards them one by one. So they cannot be a, it should be an iterative process. It should be a dynamic process. There's no set in stone um, the, uh, date that you should set, you know, for these projects. At the end of the day, what matters the most is that through scoping, you're capturing all the to-do list and you have alignment across the board 
in terms of what needs to be done to achieve the project. So in that scoping phase, everyone involved, all stakeholders need to align with it. For when there's an obstacle, there's a clear method or racy, what I would call, responsible, accountable, uh, consulted, informed people who understand when to intervene to remove these obstacles to ensure that the progress of that project is ensure, uh, is continuing. Thank you very much, Greg. Um, Tommy said you wanted to add something here, and then after that, um, uh, I see Russell has some great comments here, and then maybe if um, if Eric or uh, Monica want to take a stab at this question, let me know. If not, then we can continue on to other questions that we got. Got one coming in from Jacob, and uh, anybody watching on LinkedIn or on YouTube, if you guys have questions, let me know. I will add you to the queue. Uh, so please do let me know. Go for it. So two two quick items. The first one is far more important. I forgot that you can play background music while you're on a Zoom call. So I am listening to Monster Cat Silk while we talk. That's a score. But the second thing, which is just mildly important, I'm going to make a confession here. I'm one of those types that wants to release beauty, function, super accurate. That's the worst way to go about our work. If, if we really are delivering some predictions, if our predictions are better than average, like using the average, we're already adding value. So get it into production, but make sure you're constantly improving that model. I can't emphasize this enough, and, and I'm, I'm confessing I suck at this, but I've learned get a tracer bullet, release crap, call it crap, and say I promise to keep improving it. I like that tracer bullet terminology from uh, Andy Hunt. Uh, pragmatic programmer. Good one there, Tom. Uh, Russell, then, then Monica has got some great comments here as well. So let's go to Russell, then Monica. Uh, Russell, are you? Nope. Go for it. Uh, it looks like Russell is having some technical difficulties. Monica, uh, go for it. You have some great comments here. Sure. Um, I think that it's uh, super important to be transparent to the stakeholders and realistically, like what you can get done in a particular time frame. Um, a lot of you'll run into a lot of problems with data, trying to find the data, trying to connect to the data, gather the data, clean the data, and all of that. And a lot of times that um, isn't known from those end users. They just think that it's just a magic product that they can get in a day or two. Um, so just being upfront and realistic about that. And then also super important from my experience in having frequent periodic meetings to show them the progress that you've made and to tell them about any like roadblocks that you have. Uh, Russell is still, looks like uh, incapacitated, but Mikiko has some great comments here in the chat too. Mikiko, would you mind sharing that with the world? Yeah, I was, talking, and I was going to type up another thing too. Like, I think in data science and machine learning and engineering, I think all the fields that are like super quantitative and technical, like, I think we, as in the royal we, I think we have a really bad habit of basically wanting to like promise the moon and then being really, really like disappointed internally in ourselves if we don't do it. And if you think about it, that's like a very like outcome sort of oriented mindset. And it's like, you know, exactly like Tom, you know, Tom's point, um, it's actually better to like have a model or an analysis or dashboard shipped 
with like your minimum viable thing that works that you can trust and verify. And then you can always add on afterwards. Um, but like, especially to like with the business partners, I mean, the reality, right, is that like everyone kind of has to chart their sort of like career core, like you know, the course of their career and trust is such a huge part of it. And so it's one of these things where like your key stakeholders, like I think, I think people who work in data, data like data and machine learning, um, for the most part, like, I, like, for example, I've heard people say, you know, like, oh, the product manager is not giving us any slack. It's like, it's like how how early did you have the conversation with them, right? Like you don't want to be like the worst case scenario is like you have basically in the process of wanting to please people, you've basically told product like, oh yeah, we totally going to get that feature out by like Q4, I don't know, 2020. Um, and then you go and do the data analysis and you're like, oh man, like we got garbage. We can't do anything with this. And it's it's not even like if you push a model, it's neutral. It's like, if we push them all, this will actively hurt the company, right? Either in like the baseline or something like that. So you never want to be in that situation. Um, and I think like that part of that is that whole wanting to, you know, be very service oriented, wanting to provide the best. And also there's competition too, right? Like, every, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a competitive area. Um, so, you know, and I think it's good to like sort of give yourself that slack and understand that like, look, it doesn't always have to be like you're promising like, you know, we're going to make the company 20 million more dollars, but maybe what you can sort of promise that you will do your due diligence. You will like check all the, the, the boxes to ensure that, you know, if the product can succeed, it will be a good, you know, viable, re- you know, resilient thing. It just might not be the most amazing thing. So that was kind of sort of what I was saying about is that like, you know, being service oriented, sometimes it's a really good thing, but sometimes it can really like hurt you, especially if you're afraid to like talk to your business partners. Thank you very much, Makiko. Some great insights coming in. Uh, appreciate all this. Um, Russell, are you back? We're unable to hear you. No worries. Uh, well, we'll circle back to Russell. Uh, let's uh, let's keep it moving. Uh, Jacob has a question. Let's get to Jacob's question. Um, R- Russell, have you tried turning it off and then turning it back on? That might work. <laughs> uh, Jacob, let's uh, let's go to you. Yeah. Um. Hi, everybody. Um. Yeah. So for a while, I've been working as um, a data intern with the prop tech and startup in the UK. So um, I actually resigned um, in July. So I was told to probably hold on for a while. So today I was made um, a full-time data analyst, like junior data analyst. And so there's a challenge actually, because it happens that I'm going to do the person on the team because my manager and my colleague resigned um, last month. So they brought in someone new who's not too familiar with um, our data processes. So um, I'll be doing most of the work, like, uh, building um, data models and creating dashboards. And so part of my responsibility is to probably gather new data insight for the marketing team. So I actually don't have like prior experience in that regard because um, previously I have to be guided or probably told what, be told what to do and do X, Y, Z and stuff. So I'm just a bit nervous. So I need like, okay, like guide what I can do, how to scale up and stuff like that, basically. That's hell of an opportunity, man. I think that's uh, 
that's awesome that's an awesome position to be in uh let's get some uh tips coming from uh let's start with vin then go to eric and then um and then either monica or makiko um we'd love to hear from you guys but vin i'll, I'll do the that guy i'll do the that guy answer to start out with so everybody can do a better answer after me <laughs> um so what specifically i mean talk to me about the project what do you feel like you don't have in order to do the project that you're tackling do you have have you gotten to the point where you've like done a skills assessment on yourself um yeah yeah um so um as i yesterday i was told to um extract data like do like um etl from our event platform for business streaming then load the data then create a dashboard so there's a dashboard in place already so i'm to create like a third empathy and dashboard which i did I think that was part of the recommendation I got for them to retain me. Yeah. And so I, I could do basic and, um, analysis, um, exports, clean data, data wrangling, create reports. But I feel like I'm not there like 100%. So I feel like, okay, maybe I don't have the core competence, maybe asking the right data questions and also relating with um, stakeholders, basically. What I find with people who are in your position is that you're underestimating yourself. Somebody called a project something different, and you're probably feeling like, okay, well, this is actually something different, and it isn't. Typically, the business will bring you problems that you've seen before, and they'll put different language around it, and it'll make you feel like you're missing skills when you probably aren't. And so my advice is going to be backwards. I would start working a bit on the project and stub your toe a few times, you know, and say, okay, I don't know this. I actually don't know this. And then that's going to be a first area to study and stub your toe a little bit more and say, oh, I actually don't know this because what you're going to find is you are way more competent after doing analysis, ETL, you know, building out the pipelines and doing what you've told me you've done. You're way more competent to take on, you know, a project and it sounds like a you know it's a dashboard project and it sounds like it's a fairly simple analytics project and so you're probably more capable than you know and so what i would do is start by figuring out what it is that this project requires that you don't have yet and the only way you're going to do that is to get a few steps into it and don't be afraid to experiment around and find stuff that doesn't work and begin to you know create a learning journey based on a little bit more certainty about what you do know and what you're capable of delivering versus what you actually don't know. Because you can spend a lot of time learning stuff that you didn't really need. And that's, you know, that's the biggest advice I can give you is just avoid learning stuff you don't need and figure out what it really is that you need to learn. Uh, let's, right. go to, uh, let's go to, thank you very much, uh, Vin. Let's go to Greg. And then um, if anybody else would like to chime in, let me know after Greg we can go to uh, maybe Eric and or Monica, go for Greg. Yeah, I wanted to add on top of what Vin was saying. Uh, I think one powerful thing I see people do who, uh, early on is understanding where the data comes from or how the data is generated with regards to the business processes. So if you know which business process you're trying to improve or um, uh, help somehow, Find out the list of your use cases from the business side. Find someone on the business side who can help you understand the data. Um, I've been interviewed a lot by folks 
uh, and tables that I'm familiar with. And they ask me, how does it make sense with regards to the processes that I manage on the business side? And then start documenting what it means for you. So you can have your own understanding of these, this data. So what you're doing, you're uh, mapping this data flow with the existing business processes. And by documenting this, you're, you're becoming a powerful person who can now even educate other business folks, educate other technical folks. So start doing those interviews with key folks who understand what these business processes are um, and, then, and then map them out with you know, the origin of that data so you can understand these tables, where they're coming from. You understand why they're dirty. You understand whether you need to clean them or not and start you know, exploring um, how this data is stored um, and, and so you can have a better way of manipulating them. That, that will make you very powerful. Good tips there. Yeah, that's the that's the that's the cheat codes to the success right there. Thank you, Greg. Uh Eric. Say that first off, you know, when it comes to whether or not you're asking the right question. So I just started in my job in my company about two and a half months ago, and I still don't feel like I ask the right questions. I just ask questions. And sometimes I feel like I ask dumb questions and sometimes I feel like I ask good <laughs> questions. I have asked certain people the same questions multiple times um, because sometimes things are just complicated or hard to remember or, you know, just you're only human and you're trying to take in a crap ton of information very quickly. And so I think you just have to like give yourself a little bit of grace because you can only learn so much so fast. Even if, it's, even if it's all thrown at you very quickly, you can't catch it all. And so just ask all the questions, take lots of notes, and, you know, and you'll find as you do, the other thing about that, another benefit is when you ask the questions, people hear you, people see you, so you've gained visibility and shown like, hey, I'm a person who asks questions, I'm a person, I'm here, I'm real. And so they know that you're there and you become, you know, now you're, you're a coworker, you're part of the team, and that's an important, important thing that's an important piece to build it's is not because you know you not not for a selfish reason but because like they need to know like you are part of the herd or the pack or whatever aggregation of animals you prefer to be like and just know that know that you're there and, and a part of their team. all right thanks eric Nikiko, let's uh, let's hear from you oh yeah um if you want to also find out fun names for like groups, groupings of animals, you should look that up because there's, <laughs> sure. there's like a flotilla of gators and a, there's, there's some fun stuff there. Um, yeah. Something I do. Uh, so I guess two things. Uh, so I remember when I had first like, like moved to finance, I was working as an analyst there and I was terrified because I was surrounded by all these MBA types and it was just the, the culture shock was real because um, these were all Wall Street types. They were in suits. I came in with sweatpants and like a button down because I was running late. One of them was like, aren't you a bit junior to be like doing casual Thursdays? And I was like, oh. um, but two things that I think for me, I noticed like so one, for example, like uh, when you ask questions, sometimes it can kind of feel like if you're asking a question, it feels very elementary. So I would sort of like rephrase the question. So for example, there was a number of different ways to like calculate like revenue or like annual revenue. 
So instead of asking them like, you know, what does annual revenue mean? I would go, you know, how is annual revenue calculated here? Like what are the fields or data? What is the field or data used? And I could say like, because when I've seen it in other places, this is how it was calculated. I, I want to know what the mapping is to the data, right? So that's one way to kind of phrase it where it's like, it's like, I, I know the concept. I just, there's this specific part of it that I'm missing. Because people would use the same name for like, different calculations. And I remember when I was first going into finance, I was like, oh yeah, there's one calculate, there's like one definition for everything. And there might be one definition, but there's actually like a million implementations based off of where you go. So that's one thing I, I would do is I would just try to phrase the question in a way. So I'm still asking the question, but it kind of makes me feel a little bit better. Um, but I'm still asking it. That's the important part is to still ask the question. Um, and then I think the second part, what I would do is uh, when I'm taking notes, you know, I'll like, first I'll list all like in three parts, all the facts, uh, all the sort of assumptions and then all the unknowns. Because what that does is it empties out your brain because sometimes you can be stuck in like paralysis analysis, like, oh my God, like, you know, well, so like ETL, for example, like, what does ETL mean? Like, what do they want with ETL? What da 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 And then what you can just do is you can say like, okay, like, you know, the, the known is they want data to get transformed and dumped someplace else. The assumption, which may not be correct, and that's something to sort of confirm, right? is I need to pull data from X place to like Y place, right? So it's like, you need to go from, from one location to another. But what they might actually mean, right, is like, oh, you can write your own scripts to like clean the data in the instance, right? So maybe in the dashboard, instead of writing an ETL script, you can find a way to write a macro within it so that it just recalculates values. Um, so, but it's good to call out like, what, is, what are the facts? Like, what are the assumptions? And then what are the unknowns? And then that way, for example, when you approach people and you're like, can I, can you fill this, like fill this in for me? Right. You can also confirm like, are these like, you know, these assumptions correct. And based off those unknowns, like, like Vin said, right. Like it does help to start working with the project because then it, you can figure out what is the right sort of, you know, like learning resources you need. Right. Because for ETL, if you look it up, for example, a lot of people say like, well, ETL is IBM or, you know, whatever tool technology. Um, you know, but maybe it's actually for your particular project, you might not even need to know all that. Maybe you just need to know like where, how to write a script and where to host it or, or something like that, you know? So that for me really helps is writing notes and outlining specifically what it is I don't know. So I can go back and fill in the question. And then also when I ask people like, you know, can you, you know, can you define this for me? Can you do X, Y, Z for me? Cause a lot of times business people, they'll say stuff and then they'll kind of assume that you know exactly like what they're talking about. And sometimes it's good to call them on that and go like, actually, we are, we do not have the same definition or the same thing in mind. Yeah, that was huge for me when I was at uh, Bold Commerce. I had to, like, they're just throwing around a lot of words and a lot of terms. And like, I was new to e-commerce at that, you know, at that time. And I had like no clue what it meant. But then I was like, it doesn't mean I'm stupid if I ask questions. Like, I would just possibly like, oh, you keep saying these like words and I hear them, but they don't mean anything to me. Can you please just real quickly break it down? Tell me what this thing means and, and what this means for, for the bottom line, for the business, just so I can have some understanding. So it's completely okay to ask questions. No questions are legit, unless they're intended to be dumb. Uh, Monica, go for it. 
Yeah, just one other thing to add is just I'm all about transparency. So don't be afraid to say, you know, you don't understand something and to ask questions. Um, something that I noticed um, in my audit days, they would feel kind of like attacked or something if you ask them, like, how does this business product work or, you know, give me the definition of something. They would kind of be hesitant because they didn't want to say the wrong thing. So if you were to, like Mikiko was saying, like rephrase the question and like, how, you know, do you view this business process? What do you think that would be helpful for me to know about such and such? So I really had to add there. Everyone hit it on the nose though. Thank you very much, Monica. Vin's got a, yeah. a comment here. I'm assertively ignorant. When I get jargon, I start asking questions with confidence about how little I know. Sounds strange. It works well. Yes, it does. I was in a meeting with uh, some lawyers and accountants and they just kept saying stuff. I had to pause them. I was like, yo, y'all motherfuckers keep talking with these words. I don't know what they mean. Like, quit talking to each other and talk to me and let me, you know, what the hell are you guys talking about? Paying you guys all this money and talk to me. Um, yeah, uh, it's true. Anyways, uh, Jacob, how are you feeling about that, man? Anybody else got any tips for, for, for Jacob? Yeah. Shout out to Ben Taylor in the house. What up, Ben Taylor? That's how I, I think I feel awesome already. Good, man, because you are awesome. No, 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 no explanation <laughs> for, for why you feel that way, because you are, man. Keep it going. Yeah, uh, thanks. I will I say. I just got to say real quick, Ben Taylor, you were freaking awesome today on Lights on Data. I really oh, enjoyed listening to you a ton. Thanks, man. Yeah, dude, I missed that. I didn't know you were on Lights on Data this morning. How, how'd that go? Oh, we were talking about meaning, meaning of life and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> yeah, you turned it into a, a Lex Friedman episode. I like yeah, that. I'm like. Yeah, I've been, be I've been nice to your kids. It's yeah. I guess that's a profound statement. I'm just kidding. Hey, I've <laughs> been listening to a lot of uh, Lex Friedman lately. It's been interesting. Um, been really, really doubling down on this. Uh, I've been really thinking hard about. Well, not really thinking hard. Just I have been thinking about AI ethics and, and stuff like that. I've been reading this book from uh, Max Tegmark called Life 3.0. Uh, I don't know if you guys have checked it out yet or not, but I highly recommend it. Or at least just listen to like the talks he gives around the book or listen to the talk that he did with um, Lex Friedman. He paints a very uh, interesting picture of what the world could look like in just our lives, lifetimes in just the next few decades with all the advances that we're making. Um, so if anybody has questions, let me know. Uh, I'm, I'm keeping an eye out on everywhere on LinkedIn, on YouTube, and in the chat itself. And I don't see. Uh, I wanted to add one little thing from earlier. Greg and I, when we give our little talk together, we've been trying to, oh, did we lose? There he is. We've been trying to emphasize, look, we've got this. And, and by the way, I, I concede that not everything is a clean machine learning development pipeline in the work we do. I certainly haven't been doing anything that clean the last two years, but we talk about it a lot because it's the basics, it's the foundations. but. You look, you equate anything else you're doing to something like this. If 80% or more of our work is getting ready for modeling, getting the data ready for modeling, there's so much value we're discovering in that process. There's many stepping stones along that process where there's some key data we can go communicate back. I used the illustration of the feature 
weights, for example, but there's other things along the way. And to me, one of the bigger things is you discover dirty data, don't just strike the cleaning routine for it, go back to the data management system programmers or the data collectors and say, would you please not allow a null value here? Would you please make sure this is type checked? The little things like that just save enormous amounts of time later. Thank you very much, Tom. Uh, Eric, with a very good observation, meetings must have just ended in Mountain and Pacific time because a bunch of cool folks just got out into the chat. Shout out to the cool folks that just joined. Ben, what's up? Mark, what's up? Jaya, what's going on? Super happy to have all of you guys here. Um, what do you guys want to take this next, man? I have no questions coming in. I do have a question. Oh, go for it. Yes, please. Yeah. So do you guys think a, I guess, uh, I don't know if there's a term for this, uh, a, good, a good data scientist um, can become a good startup founder? Um, and what does it take? You know, someone heavily in the research in data science get this idea and says, hey, I want to, Oh, Benny's interested in this question. Yes. And it's like, look, I'm going to be a businessman now. Forget data science, but, you know, let's, let's do this. Um, I'm interested to hear what Ben's got to say because a successful entrepreneur with an exit as well. So go for it, Ben. I, I think as data scientist, um, the, the, it'll sound like I'm generalizing. So if you're a data scientist, you're pretty smart. Like you're STEMI, you know a lot of things, you're, you're multidiscipline. And I think sometimes that can get you in trouble because you go into a startup and sometimes people focus too much on the tech. They're like, we're going to go build this innovation. Deep learning is going to go faster. We're going to do this next big thing. It's going to be better. It's going to be faster. And I think the, the conversation that's missing usually is who's going to pay you and how much are they going to pay you? And just because something's cool or fast or interesting, it doesn't mean they're going to pay you. And so with our startup, I remember initially I was embarrassed when we get to pricing, which is hilarious because we should actually have a conversation like, why would I be embarrassed when I'm asking you to pay me 40,000 a year, 80,000 a year, 200,000 a year? It's because I'm not convincing you of the value. You know, I'm saying, hey, we've got this deep learning platform. You should really consider it. You can do some cool models. You can do some stuff. And so I think the, the, the word, so the, the answer to that question, Greg, is no and yes. It's, it's a matter of how quickly you can get to value. And so if you care more about value, than your customer, then you'll get there very quickly. If you fall in love with the tech and you forget value, then you will definitely fail. And and I'm not I'm not speaking like I have all the answers, but I've definitely had my ass kicked. Um, so that that's the word of warning is get to value, not the value from the data science perspective, but the value from like the layman buyer who is willing to cut you checks, but cut you checks where they don't get fired, cut you checks where they get promoted. So. Yeah, definitely makes sense. Um, I do have a follow up question, but definitely would like to hear other people on this um, in terms of startup. So, um, yeah. Do, do you want to go for your question? Otherwise, we could hear from Mark or, or Vin on this as well. Uh, up to you. Well, I wanted to hear, hear the other responses first. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, let's go to, uh, to, to Mark. Hey, great. Uh, so definitely, you know, I don't consider myself like uh, a full-on founder, but I've, I've tried a few times and uh, what I've realized is uh, data science has not helped me be better at business. If anything, business has helped me be better at data science. And the reason being is like, when I'm, when I'm like going through the first iteration of like, all right, what's our business model? 
what's what's our tam like what's you know what how can i uh figure out these pieces and drive kind of like this this something needs to happen now in the market many times one i don't have access to data to even work with <laughs> to do those things it's coming from a lot of user interviews and that's like really qualitative data and many times like if you go straight to the data like i don't even know if i need that and i need to build all this infrastructure to even work with all that data and like my time's better spent talking to potential customers and talking to potential investors and like thinking through this business idea and like where it fits within the market and the data can come later but because i spent a few times going through that iteration for my own ideas or for other startups now when i go into my data science work i'm like oh shoot like these things don't matter like what, what's going to drive the needle forward to like get uh, like their first customer or like get some key customers and how it fits within this market and how does my insight fit within that so i think data science does not make me better at pursuing my uh uh you know pursuing my passion for 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 startups but it does work in the reverse where it's definitely helped me as a data scientist in the startup space thank okay. you mark let's go to uh, makiko so uh i tried founding a startup um that was uh ml based and i don't want to say it didn't work be but you know i am not a part of that venture right anymore um and i think so here's kind of i guess it's kind of similar to what mark was saying i don't think working in data science hurt me i think us sort of not having a strong committed technical founder i think that sort of hurt us more frankly um because i think uh so the story and, and this part of reason why i sort of like you know started hopping on that project was the story was good the positioning was fantastic the product very well needed um i 100 understood like the segment the market but i think like not having like a strong like engineering co-founder that could help us with uh privacy security and also just infrastructure like the devops stuff that really really hurt and i think part of it was like a little bit of arrogance i assume that because i worked as a data scientist and I, did, and I did some code right that you know i could figure out like okay the entire like aws like infrastructure and that just did not work. Uh, but I don't, so I don't think working as a data scientist like hurts, right? Because I think especially if you're trying to push like an AI ML product. So for example, um, Josh Tobin, Josh Tobin and Sergey, right? Like they each, uh, Sergey who teaches uh, full stack deep learning, right? Like he, I think co-founded or he founded churnedin.com and they use AI to detect whether or not you are plagiarizing, right? And so, and Josh Tobin's, I think, working on something right now. It might be his first venture. Um, you know, so having that kind of language and that domain understanding, it, it does really help, I think. But I feel like the reason why a lot of AI ML startups probably don't work out or, you know, it seems like they're working and then poof, like, you know, you find out later on that like, okay, $20 million of VC funding just went nowhere um, is a huge part because they're not getting like the fundamental, like there was in Canada, I think there was a, a pretty, well-known one that was like what within the last year or two that that happened but it's not they're not getting like the fundamentals right and i think there's this like really fun quote from like edith uh wharton who said all happy it was like all happy families are like in the same ways all unhappy families are different in different ways and i think like 
you know, startups who do really well, like there's a lot of things that have to go right. And also there has to be like that opportunity. And I think when startups fail, there could be a number of reasons why each one failed, right? They didn't get product market fit. They didn't develop the engineering. They didn't do X, Y, Z. Um, you know, they were, they were doing something that ended up looking very similar to a patent that Apple and Google holds and they got sued out of the water, right? Um, so it's really, they just didn't cover their like bases. So I feel like as long as you have, you know, your foundation, your base is covered and it doesn't have to be in the same co-founder. This is why a lot of VCs, they like two, they like people who have two, right? If someone dies, then the company can still go on. And I do know a VC where that happened to their company, like someone died, but they still had the other co-founder to keep it going. Um, but part of it is also because different components of that team will bring sort of different skills and experiences and insight. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's just my two cents. Like, I think I would love to do it again in the future, but I think next time I'm like, you know, now that I know how we get the story and the pricing and all that, it's, it's about kind of like the foundation. You can't have AIML if you just don't even have like a good engineering infrastructure for, you know, like the regular, like web mobile stuff. So. You should all quit your jobs and go to a startup. You will learn something. <laughs> I, I, I loved everything with the, what you were saying, Kiko. Totally agree. Uh, yeah. Aside from saying what Makiko said, um, uh, just elaborating a little bit on a couple of her points. <clears throat> when, you're, uh, when you found a business, especially a startup, you're peeling back an onion of problems. And data scientists tend to be tacticians which is problematic. We want to do stuff. We want to build stuff. We want to ship to customer. We want outcomes, 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 outcomes every day. And running a startup isn't like that. Running a startup is consistently slamming your head into a new problem every day, finding someone who can help you solve that problem, or you know, sometimes learning an entirely new skill set to solve that problem. And a data scientist is kind of like a salesperson as a founder. When you get a salesperson as a founder, they think, okay, you know, we, we've got a sales problem. Okay, every problem is a sales problem. We just have to sell harder. We got to sell better. We need a little bit of change to the product and we'll be able to sell. Data scientist is going to look at it and go, well, okay, so it's a data science problem. And, it's, and you see it from that kind of one-dimensional worldview of the thing that you are so, in, you know, just day in and day out, that's what you do. And it's the same thing with salespeople. They, this is what they do. And so when they run startups, they tend to look at every problem as a sales problem. Data scientists tend to do the same thing. So like I said, you're peeling back this onion of problems. And to be a successful founder, you have to be a data scientist who doesn't mind solving a sales problem. You have to be a data scientist who can recognize that this is a product fit problem that this is, you know, I solved my problem with this. And if you look at all the ML ops tools that are out there, you know, I solved my problem with my product. Now I have to talk to customers and solve theirs in order for this to really grow. And that's another type of problem. And it's not a data science problem. That's a getting with customers and understanding. But the thing is, you can use data science to solve so many of these problems that we really get kind of pigeonholed into thinking, okay, it's just another data science problem. I just got to get some more data and I'll figure it out. And as a founder, if you don't have a good team around you that can pull you back, that you respect and trust, who can pull you back and say, look, Vin, it's not a data science problem. All right. 
we're not going to we're not going to do this with you know an algorithm and a massive amount of data gathering and no i'm just going to send a few of our people out to talk to our customers and we're going to figure this out and so you really have to have a good team around a data scientist but the second side is you have to have a data scientist who's willing to change and not use the hammer every day thank you if i can add for a minute uh hey guys this is my first meeting actually um so uh, prior to this, actually, I ran my family business. So it was a small business. So it wasn't a startup. So I, I came to data science from an entirely different perspective. I came from, okay, I'm running a $50 million business. Technology is not a priority, like at all. <laughs> like, so you have technology, which you use sometimes, but we are not investing in what's the latest technology. How are we driving this technology? What technology are we getting? We're getting is what's driving the, the, the most to our value stream. And in most cases, I came from a, a quantitative background. That's what I did. And it was dealing with people, um, de selling, dealing with lawyers, uh, really business strategy. Uh, how are we improving our, our, our business model, our oper operating model, kind of like the, the talk that Vin, uh, the, the stuff that Vin talks about and a lot of his a lot of his topics the focus is how are we improving our operating model model how are we driving value to our business is not really what technology technology comes after uh, after we have all these processes after we have all the people in place because if you don't have the people if you don't have the customers technologies at least to to a small business that has 50 million dollars in revenue there is is it, it, it it'll it won't work it just doesn't work. It'll fail. So that, that's from my perspective. Thank, thank you, Manny. Manny. Yeah, thank you. Greg, go for it. Yeah, no, that, that's uh, that's awesome. I really love the the discussion. I guess the follow up question I have is that um, I guess I was following uh, an episode from Jason Calacanis, and he's like huge in the VC scene, and in terms of you know what you should expect or what VC firms. You know the, the the legacy ones, especially what they expect is um, startups to come up with a team where there needs to be, and Mikiko alluded to that. There needs to be someone who's strong in the technology side because if you show up by yourself and you show up as the business person, uh, they might say, "Well, you're not, you know, technical, technically savvy, so we're not really interested in in investing in your company." I guess is that is that the right mindset that you know VCs uh should have or uh, uh do we really need you know a co-founder who's tech and a co-founder who's non-tech to have a solid um uh you know you know solid startup that has a chance to survive uh the next phase of you know obstacles someone's got to build it someone's got to sell it right so uh makiko i see you have your hand up go for it yeah so as a result of basically not getting um like an engineering oriented founder, uh, we had to engage contractor services, which were spotty, cost money and equity. And uh, when that project ends, uh, that's when you find all the regressions in your code. Um, and also too, like security and privacy is a new thing. So I think it's one of these things where like, there, I mean, there's a lot of things you can say about VCs, right? Some good. Probably a lot of it bad, but 
um, at the end of the day, right, they're, they're also business people. So they just want to see a return on their investment. So they're going to just basically try to mitigate that risk as much as possible. Um, and that's like the unfortunate thing, right, is that it's, it's known that if you're, for example, a woman, if you're LGBTQ, if you're a person of color and all that, right, like there are certain things about founders that will sometimes decrease their chances, which is like incredibly unfortunate. And the nice thing is that there are now like VC funds that are specifically, so start out, for example, they're very focused on LGBTQ um, and, and there's like other female ones too. But uh, at the end of the day, like they are just going to mitigate, like mitigate risk as much as possible. And so if you're selling like an engineering product and you don't have like, not necessarily like an engineering co-founder, right? Uh, even if you have like a, a number three employees, like an engineer, right? Like, as long as you can basically say, like, I have the engineering resources where, you know, we can build the product and all that, um, that will go a long way towards that risk mitigation. But there's other ways, too, that they could be a little bit concerned. So, for example, you could have two engineers who just have no idea how to talk to people, no idea how to market, no idea the value prop. They show up in a meeting and the VCs are pitching them all these questions and the VCs are going like, oh, man, like, they're just saying yes to everything. Like. You know, we're, we're getting them for, we're getting them on the equity. Like, you know, what else are they going to say yes to? Are they going to like survive in the marketplace? Like, do they know the domain? So there's a lot of these ways that like, kind of similar to an interview, right? Like the VCs can kind of pick out like, okay, well, we don't like this about this person. We don't like this about that person. We think they should have this and this, right? Um, so it's one of these things where you just kind of have to cover a lot of those like core bases as much as possible in some way. And then at that point, I think it's kind of up to like the VC and up to like luck and opportunity to some degree. Go to Mark, then Ben, then Tom. Uh, Makigo's great point also reminded me something that came up when I was speaking to like angel investors and other other VCs for for our idea. And like the biggest thing that came up for me and my co-founder at that time was like, you're both first time co-founder co-founders. And like that's a huge risk for us to to try to pursue that. And so the way we mitigated that was that we just spent weeks going through our network and trying to find someone who was open to, to join us on our idea, who was also already a founder and like had VC backing already before. And so once we added that person to the mix, one, they have the expertise of like how to navigate and also had connections within the space, but also like it like reduced like the level of hesitancy to like give money to people who are completely new to this. And so that was another key thing is like, are you a first time founder? And so if you are like the advice I receive is like partnering with someone who's actually gone through this process before, or at least getting a set of advisors that can like kind of like reduce your risk uh, to, to potential investors. Ben, go for it. Then after Ben, we'll go to uh, Tom. Tom was ahead of me. Oh, Tom, go, Tom. go for it. Ben, thank you. That's perfect, because I kind of wanted to aim this question at you. Um, I had a startup. I'm not going to say it's failed. It's just been on the shelf for maybe about a decade. <laughs> but a question regarding this whole thing. Do you all think it's uh, conceivable or maybe preferable to make your initial startup or at least one of the 10 initial startups you try? Um, one that you can just launch by your own cash flow, by trying to follow both good tech and business practices, because 
I've been part of other startups and I've seen all the classic mistakes that have been listed here today. I'll give an example, the, the most prevalent one, the most uh, salient one from the things we've been talking about today. This, the guy that was leading the startup could not get his head out of the hardware, out of the tech, and seemed to just be making boneheaded, stupid business moves and not leading the team very efficiently because he was always focused on the tech. But when I've talked to successful startup people, they've always affirmed when I've asked them, would you prefer to try to start where you're, you're making it on your own cash flow instead of having to get investors? It's like, no pause, yes. And I'm just curious, do you, many of you think it's healthier to try to start that way because if if it's pie in the sky thinking i'd like y'all to shoot me down because i actually think if you get to that level of business and tech ingenuity it's so much better to launch that way i, I ben if you don't mind answering first i yeah, hopefully you would yeah um so with our startup, I, we had a lot of pressure from the CFO of Hireview, who was my friend, saying, you know, try to hold on to the equity, try not to raise, like try to get to a million in revenue, 10 million in revenue. And um, I'm a big fan of raising. So if I went and did another startup, I'd raise as much as I could out of the gate rather than self-funding. Like maybe I'd get to like an MVP or something or first customer if I could. Um, but growth, like capital does so much, just the talent you can hire the the mistakes you can make you know data robot we've raised a billion dollars you can do a lot with a billion dollars i'm not saying like you know any I, I, that that's a rare event but raising any capital can be really useful what one um one of the concerns i had greg with me when i was doing or not greg tom i'm <laughs> One of the concerns i had with me is i i always had these side projects like i had this super technical thing i was working on and if you can raise capital, you can go full time, you can quit your other jobs, you can actually hire competent people, probably people on this call come join you and go after it. So I, I, but people have different opinions. My co-founder, he would not raise again. I would raise again. So you're always going to get two sides of that coin. One, one thing I wanted to bring up with this group is their, their valuable lessons for criticism during the startup phase. And, and so Greg, one of the lessons I learned is if you came to me and you're doing a startup and you, and you said, hey, I landed my second customer, that should be a you know, point of celebration. But what I've learned is depending on the details of your second customer, I could criticize you. I could say the second customer is too different from the first. And you could try to argue and say, no, like there's a platform play or the technology is being shared. But um, a fair criticism would be, but the deck you used to sell the second customer had nothing to do with the first customer. And the momentum you gained from the second customer did not earn you the, the first customer did not earn you the second customer. And so there's so much value when you do a startup and you come up with an idea, get those three customers in a line. They don't have to be big accounts, but just the fact that the first customer is helping you sell the second and the third, that is something that VCs talk about where when I was a young founder, that didn't make, I was, I was so arrogant, platform play, we support these data types and we sell to everyone. And that is a death nail to investors for good reason. I didn't understand that early on. This is such a good point, Ben, because I feel like the way you're answering, you're saying too many startups 
uh, slip into the specialist quadrant of cash flow quadrants instead of the business quadrant is what I kind of hear you saying. And, and the other thing I'm hearing too is that VCs are looking for some sort of virality score for a product, right? So yeah. this product, this customer spreads the word and it amplifies uh, throughout. Thank you, Ben. Yeah, the, the, the magic thing for them is can you get to three to five customers? And if you can, because the, the issue that comes up that data scientists can trick themselves into is discounted consulting. And I say it's discounted consulting because if you actually went and charged your consulting rate, you'd be making more than running after the startup. Oh, I'm doing this platform. I'm building this thing, this technology. If I looked at your hourly rate at what you're doing over here, it ends up being discounted consulting. And so sometimes you can trick yourself into doing all of this work and the momentum is not there and Greg can only be scaled because it really, it comes down to your scale factor. Like what is Greg's scale factor? If you're working a hundred hour weeks to deliver across three to five accounts, the sad reality could be if you step back, you're doing discounted consulting and, and that's where you get that check. Like you, you really check yourself mentally and say, how do you, how does the second and the third customer become easier? And how do you actually, most founders don't take vacation and that's a really sad thing. That's a sad reality. How do you take vacation? That should be the first milestone. Greg's taking vacation six months in the startup. Then we'd all celebrate on this call. Like Greg did something to scale and scaling is hard. Yeah. And it's to reiterate sort of like Ben's points, right? Uh, you're so it's funny. So, so the start was passed. So I'm doing something like different now on the side um, that is a lot more manufacturing <laughs> and distribution heavy. Um, it's not technology, right? Um, but I think, you know, one point is in terms of like, do you raise? So for example, MailChimp, whose opinions I do not represent and Safe Harbor legal, yada, yada, yada. I don't speak for them, right? Um, but they're a private company and they've been private for 20 years and they don't do any VC funding. And a lot of times when they're asked, why have you not why haven't you done VC funding? They said, well, because we started MailChimp during the dot-com boom, or sorry, dot-com bust, not boom, bust. And uh, no VC was willing to fund it. So they kept it as a side thing and they still kind of did consulting, whatever, to pay the bills. And eventually it made more money than they did and da-da-da. So, you know, there's a whole spiel. But for them, right, like they're, they don't have VC funding because they just, it was not available to them. And as a result, it has created a very, in some ways, unique company where they're not tied to the same sort of goals of, you know, every quarter we have to post profits. Well, we don't because we don't release them publicly, but they still made $600 million in revenue last year. And that I can talk about because they did talk about that in a, in a, in a blog post, right? Uh, for me, if I was to do a startup, very similar to Ben, I think I would probably raise early as hard as possible. I would, I would get an MVP as soon as possible and like, you know, talk about tech debt, screw that. Right. Like, don't don't even worry about tech debt, like build something, get it in front of people. No. And that was one I think one, that was one of the things that killed us was that we were trying to go for like perfection and robustness. And I'm like, you know, we should have just create like a bunch of like not even like developed a bunch of models. We should have just like taken off the shelf models like Roberta's or something like that, you know, use it in MVP, but but showed how it could be solved like a pain point. And then we should have raised to get like the security and like the engineering and DevOps resources that we needed. Cause the other part too, right? So if you can raise, and, and, and there's a lot of research out there, you can look at A16, which is the and Anderson Horowitz website, 
Um, there's a few others that you could look at. But like if you raise like I think like a, a certain level of funding in like your seed stage, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like that's like a really good signal to, you know, engineers or to designers or to marketers or growth people that like, oh, like this startup knows what they're doing. So a lot of times those employees are willing to join if like they get more equity and less cash, right? They might not do sweat equity. A lot of times that's like co that's like the co-founders do sweat equity. But if you can raise a certain amount early on, that already is a signal. So in a way, like you can get that talent and you can build up that infrastructure. And then you can just focus on like, how do we like, yeah, get from zero to one. And then how do we get from one to like a hundred, a thousand, all that. Um, and it just, it really depends also on your favorite uh, flavor profile. Now, the other thing too, that I would probably do differently, honestly, is that it is such a hard road. It is so hard. Like, I was working on it for about a year. Um, and this is after having worked at a bunch of early stage startups. So I thought I knew my shit, right? Because I had been in IC. I'd never been in the founder position, but I worked in early stage startups. So I thought I knew what I was doing. Um, you know, but I was working on it for a year as a side, right? So in a way, I was tricking myself into thinking like, oh, yeah, you know, it's going well. And yeah, it's going well because I had a full-time job. So I was paying my rent and all that other stuff. So when I quit my job to go try to, get it over the finish line for six months. Um, that's when the panic started to hit. And I was like, oh man, like we're not making the progress on the roadmap that we should be. And then all these other issues like started popping up and all that. It's like how with work from home, um, you saw a bunch of couples like divorcing because now like both the, the husband and wife were, or, you know, wife and wife and husband, and husband were at home with the kids. And they're like, oh, we actually don't like each other all that much. And you, you kind of got that like from work from home. And it was very, very similar working on startup. Like, if you are working on a part-time, you could trick yourself into thinking that it's going places. Um, so on the one hand, you keep your job, you can, you know, you can mitigate risk, but also if you are not sort of immersing yourself in it, you might not really be seeing kind of like the red flags and the blind spots that is ultimately like get you. And I, six months after that made the decision to, I'm going to go get a full-time job again because I need medical insurance, any money. Um, but you know, Next time, I probably wouldn't do it unless I was like really passionate about the product, you know, and it doesn't have to be like it's world saving, but I'm like, next time I got to, I got to love this shit. I got to be really passionate about it because it's going to be hard no matter, even if you do everything, if you, do, yeah, even if you do everything right, it's going to be hard, you know, but I, I still think it's, it's worth it. It's worth it once in your life to try it. Ben, go for it. And after Ben, we'll go to um, Makiko says something that stood out to me and that's um, sometimes we over-engineer like we're we're working on a startup we're overthinking it and i remember with my co-founder when model view controllers came out with sql i started back in 2003 so for me that was very confusing i'm like oh man these model view controllers i just want to write my raw sql and i had an opportunity to talk to eric reese he wrote the lean startup and i asked him about this about the technical debt of writing out raw sql queries and he said you know what the funny thing about technical debt especially in a startup sense sometimes that debt never comes to and so the important point that that's screaming right there with technical debt in a startup, you should never over-engineer anything because you have no validation. The fact that a single customer is using something. So my recommendation to people is don't just do an MVP, do like an SMVP, do a shitty MVP. And so if you're building it out, if you can't tell me like, yes, if you sneeze, if there is an update, if you do anything, this will break. But currently today for this demo, for this customer, this works. You can land the customer, you can, you can improve. You can actually react to a customer fire. If they're pissed at you because the product's not working, you can jump in and fix it. But I think too many founders, you know, they want to like do 
Kubernetes, auto scaling, like you know all these technologies that you should be using. And the thing that is so sad about that is you don't have a thousand customers. You're fighting for three. <laughs> so like that that's like the that is like the alarm bells going off. Like you're fighting for three customers. I know there's all these sexy technologies. The technical debt may not come due. And so celebrate technical debt early on. Get rid of it later. I think I might be starting to start up after this uh, with all this advice. Uh, Mark, go for it. Oh, again, Mikiko's awesome advice inspired a, a thought of mine and just talking about how like how much being a founder, like it's really glamorized online, but it, like it really sucks. <laughs> and uh, again, similar thing, I was at startups and like I've been around friends who had startups. And I'm like, they're totally doing it. I can do it too. And uh, when we were applying to Y Combinator, part of it is you get $100,000 for, for your startup. It's like a seed round, essentially. And when we got into the final round for interviews, it was going to be like the no-go after the interview. And leading up to the interview, I was both excited, but also having like panic attacks. Because I knew that if I got the money, <laughs> shit would hit the fan. <laughs> not, not in the sense of like, well, yeah, everything, because it's a startup, everything's on fire. But because then it'll be real. I, I, I took money and I have to deliver and there's only 100K for our business and our three co-founders. So I'm going to be living. I'm going to have to convince my wife that we're going to move back into my parents' house so we could like actually pursue this business um, and like basically drop everything. And like the, I was passionate about the idea. So like I was willing to take that sacrifice. But I think a lot of people don't realize the amount of sacrifice it requires to actually do that because they, they have like the founder's salary. And, you know, I think a lot of people don't take that account as well. It's like, can you, can you handle six months of just having like non-existent pay or vacation or anything like that? Um, and that was like a profile too, that a lot of like, when we're talking to uh, angel investors, like one of the things they're asking is like, how hungry are you? Are you willing just to like work 80, 90 hours? Cause if not, I'm not, I don't want to give you money. They should have just told, told us that, um, which is completely fair. And so, um, you know, that's just something that, that Makiko's kind of remind me of. It's just like, also for the founder profiles, um, you know, are you willing to, to do it? And ultimately I came to the decision of like, after we didn't get into Y Combinator, uh, we, we still had traction for potential customers, but because our product was selling to phar pharmacists, it was like during the eight to five. So I was like, I can't work full time. I'm at an inflection point. Either I go all in on this or it's not going to work at all. And I just, I couldn't afford to, to be a founder. <laughs> um, it just didn't work out. And that was, that was a tough pill to swallow for myself. And it really put into perspective, like I'd, I'd put in like six months of work into this only to be like, oh, I can't afford to pursue this. And so now in my head, I'm like, how can I better prepare myself to make that jump as a founder? Yeah, go to, go to Marina after this. Uh, but I mean, just to quote Naval Ravigant when he talks about uh, taking VC money, uh, he says, if you fail, what's the big deal? You lost a few million dollars of investor money and they've got plenty more. And that's the bet they take on the chances that you will succeed. So yeah, what's the big deal? Lost a few million dollars of, of investor money. They got plenty more. Uh, Marina, go for it. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, like, um, I'm going to kind of like reiterate on some of the points, but basically, so I, I, um, I'm, you know, sometimes advising for, the startups I've been in front of, and I would like to try. But you know, the main thing that I see is that um, if I see a team, uh, you know, like they they are not able to build something and get customers, 
like, you know, like the technology, who cares about the technology? So this started with, you know, like how data science or as, as a data scientist, who cares? You know, like to me is if you have an idea, right, it's a good idea, then you have a kind of like a good team, right? Especially if you are at the beginning, I'm not assuming you are going to have the best team yet, but at least, and you can have a product um, or whatever, like, you know, like this CTMVP. So, so get something that works and don't be like too white. Like I have seen so many people that try to like, you know, do like a million things. And, you know, for sure, these people will never go anywhere. You have to be very like laser focused on what you want to, you know, not, not trying to cover everything, but laser focus. Then you get your few customers that are going to be, you know, your, um, your, your like raving fans. If I, you know, if you see that, then, then you know that, you know, that is, you know, that has probably a lot of chances to, you know, at least move forward. Right. But the other thing is that many people come with ideas, you know, like everybody has an idea. They think that, you know, like, well, you know, I'm an entrepreneur and like it, it's so glamorized. Right. So, and then they didn't even think many of the ideas are not even scalable. Like it's just, Okay, that's good. You know, like especially I also come from academia. Believe me, there are many things that are not scalable or whatever you try is in such a small thing that will never go anywhere, right? Um, and in terms of finances, I mean, I don't, that's, you know, that's something I don't know, but you probably don't want to dilute yourself too much too quick. That's, you know, that's, I will say, you know, you want to hold on, right? And the thing, if you don't have a founder, that will, you know, like is so passionate that has left everything and is doing that, then you know that's not going to go anywhere. No matter how beautiful it is and how great is the idea, you know that that's, you know, it is not, is you have to have a passionate person in the team that just, you know, like by that will also build the culture and the mission, right? Because that's also like part of the things that, you know, I think are important is to have a good mission like and the, that is going to build the culture of the company right um but you know uh, yeah so to me like the first question was about data, being data scientist i mean you can be anything it's just i don't think it's relevant the fact that you are data scientist or doctor or or you are i don't know whatever it's just um the the those are tools that you are gonna use later and yes at some point if it's data center then you need a, a good, you know, tech person, a good or CTO or yes. Um, but but I think that's secondary to the fact that you still need a good idea, right? And, you know, like a focus, narrow uh, problem to solve and raving fans, right? So you're raving customers. So. Very, very good advice. Thank you very much, Marina. And also love the shirt. Uh, I'm the coolest person you'll ever meet. That is a good shirt. Uh, Vin, go for it. Yeah, I, so my first business in college, train wreck. So I'm not speaking from a position of perfection by any stretch of the imagination. In Reno, in 2009, 2008, 2009, the startup scene kind of started seeping into Reno. And you couldn't, like, you couldn't get a gold mine funded. That was the joke, is that in Reno, you couldn't get a gold mine funded. And we had, you know, everybody from, from the government trying to beg VCs to come in and fund companies. And it just, it didn't work. Nobody wanted to fund anything that came out of Reno. 
so we had two kind of founders. One founder left Reno, went to the Bay Area, and you know just founded their business where there was money and where people were looking to to fund businesses. The other half, and I'm one of that other half, we just stayed here and figured out how to bootstrap businesses. And our perspective on startups is so different than all of the other startup beach star, you know, Silicon Alley and all of these other places. Our perspective on startups, and there's a lot of, you know, Reno's out there. Reno's not the only unique little ecosystem. We all took a completely different approach. And I mean, one of the things that we did was we let customers talk us into starting businesses. And there's a few people in Reno who have, I think, three t- one of them is a three-time founder, three-time exit. And he just let his customers talk him into starting a business. And it w- there's always need. And if you are good at connecting with customers, you don't need to connect with VCs. They'll come find you because you have product, you have market share. You have passionate customers who are your evangelists. They're your marketing department. And, you know, talking about, you know, building off of some of what Marina said, you know, you got an idea that's awesome. Great. But your customers really have to have the idea. Your customers have to be passionate about this thing or they won't buy it. And there has to be a business there, not just a product. You have to be able to create a business and sustain the business and do all of the things that, you know, businesses do outside of Silicon Valley, outside of the VC world, outside of the startup culture and startup mentality and startup thought process. And so remember, you're building a business. Your customers are going to build it. They'll give you the ideas. You know, Not all of us are going to start like a, an Apple where we're telling people you need an iPhone. That's really rare. Most businesses don't do that. And everyone says, oh, those are the only ones that scale. No, not at all. You, you can watch a just traditional idea, organic type of business using technology of any sort scale ridiculously if they have a, ca- a pass- passionate customer base and they build a business first and then create products that their customers love and they cultivate and grow a market and do the things that a normal business does. So as much as everyone wants to come at it from a startup perspective, I mean, it's just as relevant to come at it from a business perspective. I mean, pretend you're back in the 1930s. How would they do it then when there were no VCs and banks told you get out? Like, how would you do it? How did they start businesses back then? And sometimes it's good to look at your business from a different perspective like that, because a lot of the startup stuff is hype. A lot of the startup stuff that you get pulled into and the VC stuff you get pulled into is noise. And if you do the fundamentals and you do the strategy and you build the business like a business, Sometimes that stuff takes care of itself. And obviously you want funding, you want VCs interested, you want ridiculous scale, you want a lot of this stuff. But at the same time, you're also building a business. And it's really hard to deny somebody funding when they've got customers, got a great product and got a solid, substantial running business. Real hard to say no to that person. So, I mean, always think about it from a different perspective, not just the traditional startup and VC route. I mean, pretend you live in Reno and no one will fund your gold mine and you got to figure it out. Sometimes that's what being a founder is. It's just figuring it out. You know, when, when those alternatives aren't viable, just admit they're not and move forward, move past them. Thank you very much, Finn. Uh, and so a lot of great, a lot of great tips, a lot of great advice uh, given today. Um, 
Greg, I'll toss it back to you, see if you have any follow-up questions or, or comments or anything. No, I think uh, that, that, that gives me um, a lot to, to think about. Um, ultimately, I'd like to do either or, whether continue to, to help startups or also um, found my own startup. And, uh, you know, in the situation I'm in right now, as I, as I said in the comments, I think uh, to, to, the, to the part local that uh, Ben alluded to, you know, I, I'm trying my best to hang on to a little bit of it. And uh, having responsibilities doesn't make that uh, easy. So, um, but I do believe for anything you want to do, there's always a strategy that works where you can minimize some sort of risk, um, not completely eliminating them. I don't think I can eliminate them, but uh, at some point, you know, I think this is one of those sessions where I'm going to have to re-view um, it uh, to, to extract some more insights from it because I really enjoyed listening to each and every one of you. So thank you. And yeah, I think Greg, yeah, go for it. Like, like that idea of risk, right? I mean, I think everyone has sort of a different like flavor version of risk. So Ramit study talks about the rich life, right? And I remember when I first started reading him, I was like, God, this guy's such a badass. Um, but the but the info was so good because I think I mean, I, like you know, my my parents were either not college educated or they were you know they would like never like had a college degree or you know you know my mom like she's a Asian female, you know, so I've seen all these experiences where like they could not, there are certain kinds of risk they could not afford. One kind of risk was, you know, telling like their bosses to go, sorry, to go um, F themselves uh, because, hey, you know what? My mom had like a husband to support, you know, when he was doing his consulting business and a daughter to put through college, right? Like, or, you know, other things like that. So, you know, for them, like, and for that generation, like they had a different idea of risk. Uh, for me, when I, when I like quit my job to go work on the startup, I had made that decision after closing sort of like final or near final round interviews with like five other companies that were competitors in that space for like I, as a data scientist or like a ML engineer. So I'm like, okay, worst case scenario is if I fail at this, I can take that information and I can bring it to this domain space or even, you know, other companies and I've got money and I've got a very supportive partner, you know, who didn't understand it. So like for everyone, risk is very relative, right? So just because someone says like, oh, this is not a good idea to me, it doesn't mean it won't be a good idea to you, right? Because when I quit my job, like in the middle of a pandemic, my parents didn't I didn't like it. I didn't like the job. I want to work on startup. My parents were like, uh, like house, family, kids. Like, how do you do that? But for me, right, it was very informed because I'm like, look, worst case scenario is I go get a job or, you know, whatever. I build that savings back up. Um, you know, it's all all good. And the nice thing about being an advisor is you can learn kind of from like other people's mistakes and sort of like really think it through. Um and if it's something that like you feel like very, very like strongly passionate about, there's all there's tons of ways to like mitigate that risk even further through the information gathering. I think something that I kind of learned in some ways is that being an entrepreneur, it's like this really kind of crazy sort of roller roller coaster of being you have to be just optimistic enough, op just optimistic and crazy enough to think the idea could work. But you also have to at the same time kind of have the split personality where you have to be like the most negative Nancy in the world where you're like, mm, 
I think this could like put it off the rails. Mm, this could really, I could get sued for a lot of money for this. So you have to be sort of like optimistic and like you have to kind of believe in your chances, but at the same time, really be honest with yourself about like, here are the areas that could ding me. How do I sort of, you know, like how do I mitigate this or how do I do that? And it's like a really weird sort of, it's a little bit of a weird seesaw. And I think, you know, as long as you can kind of have a foot in both of those areas, that will definitely help as well as keeping in mind, like what is kind of your own personal risk curve and what is your own personal journey? Like I have some stuff I work on right now that people would probably look at that and they go like, you're an engineer and you're wasting your time on that. Like you get paid like five, $10,000 for consulting. And I'm like, yeah, but I love this thing. I think about it. I dream about it. I have books about this stuff, you know? So at the end of the day, I would feel so bad if I didn't pursue the idea in some form. Like it doesn't have to be a full blown business, but you know, if anything, like if quarantine tossed anything, right. It was the fact that like, you don't always have tomorrow. You don't always have like a year even from now. So if you have these kind of lingering questions or doubts, they can kind of like eat at you after a time, you know? So that's, that's kind of like my, my story of two cents. I'm sure it's also why it's how I'm justifying my, my stuff to myself too. Right. So. Yeah. Be rationally optimistic. Right. That's the, the key, I think. Um, excellent insight. Excellent. Excellent conversation, Greg. Thanks so much for, uh, for, for kicking off this discussion. Um, this is uh, probably more than what most people will learn in their MBA programs, what you guys have been talking about today. So thank you for that great discussion. Um, any last minute question before we start wrapping it up? Yes, Ramit Sethi is from Sacramento. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Uh, I tried to pull the Sacramento and Punjabi and Sikh card on him to get him on the podcast, no response. He does not care. Uh, well, go for it, Ben. I was going to tell the group, sometimes data science becomes crazy. So data science, we think of like coding away in a notebook and doing all this stuff. So I actually have to go buy a satellite transceiver, all this gear, and drive up drinking a bunch of coffee into the middle of Wyoming and go hike 10 miles and fish, not for fun, but for data science. Because there's a project coming up in three weeks. And so I'm actually going out to like prove out this concept with cameras and capture and teaching AI to like study a fly fishing cast. It's just hilarious. Like, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's useful for anyone, but it's just like, I've never used a satellite transceiver and I'm thinking about bears and I bet if I buy a gun on the corporate credit card, I'll get in trouble. I probably won't buy a gun. I'll get some bear spray. So it's just like, I don't know. I don't know if that's useful for people, but sometimes data science can take you into wacky places that don't make any sense. Did not realize you were doing that for for your work. It's uh, it's, it's, it's more interesting now that. Yeah. You now have to say that. <laughs> well, yeah. it's actually just a pre. It's a pre hike assessment because I'm taking a big group up there in three weeks, and there's like emails with lawyers trying to figure out like risk, like actually having to tell lawyers about like bears and different things is really interesting, and yeah, it, it'll be hilarious if I don't come back if I get eaten by a bear. Just know that there were lawyers at Data Robot that had to deal with. I, I don't know if that. It, it'll just be funny. So, but the focus is going to be on the fly fishing. 
Yeah, the focus is on predicting if we can catch a fish on a particular cast using all of the known information outside of the casting window. So like the, the casting, the 15 second casting window with a dry fly, in addition to recency, wind, all of these features that people that like fishing think they know. But unfortunately, um, we could have done this next to like a fish hatchery or we could have like floated down the snake river or the green, but there's no hero's journey in that. So me, like a dumbass, I said, this story will be way more interesting if there's a hero's journey. Apparently that hero's journey is like a 20 mile round trip hike. And so I'm going to get my ass kicked tomorrow and I'll return and report like Sunday. But the thing that's hilarious are the other people I'm signing up for this ass kicking in three weeks. Um, anyway, some of my decisions are not well thought out, but we, we see where they end up. It'll be really interesting to see what I can tell you guys in three weeks when we actually do this. It will either be a huge success or a bunch of like lawyer told you, told you so. so. Ben in the woods returns. You. That's right. Ben in the woods returns. <laughs> Lawyers are you. Guys. But, it, it, you know, I'm pretty sure it's going to be a success. So best of luck to you. But it makes me wonder what business model can data science solve, right? Because when you describe this thing you're trying to solve with data science, I'm like, is there something that's complex that we call complex that data science can take a stab at? It's crazy. Like, uh, I guess there's, there's plenty of work for us to do, right? So we yeah, don't have well, any, any work. Well, I'm, I'm a big fan of bringing data science into your daily likes and passions. So another example would be like, if you like wake surfing behind a Mastercraft boat, why not have data science tune the wake for you? Like tell you the trim of the boat and tell you where people should sit on the boat. Like these are things that people think they know. They have intuition. You could actually have data science like processing that in real time. And so hey. my goal is how do we come up with these projects? That Crafts out of craftsmanship. What are you doing with that? <laughs> well, <laughs> up and like actually cutting your knife while you're trying to like, you know, create a bag or something like that. Or like a Bowie knife. That, that's what it's about. Like, oh, cut my thumb. Oh, no. I, I just want my droid in the future to go backpacking into the wind rivers and fly fish for me and then fly them home. Or I guess it'll be a droid, right? Or a drone. Or a Tesla bot. Yeah, yeah it'll be the <laughs> Tesla bot. And, and I'll be in my VR space where I'm just drooling away for days. <laughs> so, so that's interesting. So you're going you're gonna to take pretty much um, all of the data from the uh, just IoT type of data, 15-second window, and predict if you can catch a fish, but you're not going to test and see if fish are already there, right? Because wouldn't that kind of be like data leakage? Because you can't when you're when you're casting the reel. Right? I'm just I'm just thinking about the the actual end use application of this. Can I have like a fishing reel that I toss out that will then give me a probability that I will catch a fish? Like you you could. So when this is done, when the cast hits the water, you would have like a real time probability. Because a lot of times when you cast, like, do you leave it there for five seconds, 10 seconds? Do you need to move to another side of the lake? Like, are you just wasting your time? Do you need to change a fly? So, so all of this you, stuff is up in the air while we're trying to bring this together. Are you predicting the probability that the fish will be there given the condition or the probability that this particular cast will catch Particular cast. So each cast is its own observation. So I've been having a lot of fun lately with these temporal windows. So, you know, in a 15-second window buffer... In addition to the non-window, the non-video data, can you teach, you know, it, but it, th this is an example of something that speaks to people's soul, souls. So if you enjoy fly fishing, this is like yeah. a near spiritual thing for you. Yeah, and the yeah. place we're going is Circa the Towers, 
And if you talk to anyone that's been there, they're like, oh, that's an ass kick. Why are you going there? I'm just like, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> because things get more interesting, right? Sounds like a lot of fun, man. Uh, it, it's all about, to- it has to be memorable, right? If yeah. you can check the memorable box you've won, even if there's some suffering involved. Uh, yeah, that sounds really interesting. Really fascinating. I'd love to see how that would, uh, how that would work, man. Love to- You're all invited tonight. If I can get there. Um, shout out to Ku Ping in the building. Ku, what's going on, my man? Good to see you here again. Um, we're right about to wrap it up, but um, if there are any last minute questions, now is the time. No questions, but I'd like to say good morning to everyone here. Hey, <laughs> I just morning, hop man. on the call. <laughs> hey, thanks yeah, for I just coming, hop man. on to the call. Yeah. Thanks for coming, man. Thanks for thanks for, for joining in. Sorry that uh, we're about to wrap it up, but I appreciate you dropping in, man. No, no worries. You. No worries. Yeah. Just just come on to say good, good morning to everyone. <laughs> I actually have a, a quick question. Yeah, go for it. Um, hopefully it's quick. But uh, essentially, I'm, I'm starting to do some more teaching around data science. Um, and very various things. And I was just curious if anyone has any books or resources, not to get better at necessarily like data science, but to get better at teaching and breaking down concepts. Uh, if if you have any kind of reference points, if there's a, a better way to go about it. And, you know, I, I keep on iterating on different lesson plans. Every single time I teach someone something, I take notes. I'm like, oh, that worked. That didn't work. But it would be cool if there's already some figured out framework, you know, uh, that people use that I can kind of iterate on top of. It's a good question, man. I don't know if uh, a framework, have you tried to look into some literature for just like um, features to design math curriculum and to try to see what they use? I mean, the two things that I could, that are coming, like there's like three resources I would recommend that come to mind, but none of them like have probably that structure that you're looking for. Uh, one would be just how to solve it by uh, uh, G. Polia. Polia. Um, I can get you a PDF copy of that book if you'd like. Um, that'd be you. that'd be awesome. Yeah. Then uh, another one I'd say maybe um, the Barbara Oakley book, uh, A Mind for Numbers. But those are more books just on how to learn and how to solve problems, which you could probably take and teach those same things in your data science course but yeah i'll flip it over to to the audience uh and the, the participants rather if you guys have any suggestions manny or or ku i i i don't have any particular suggestions but my mom is a special ed teacher so she may i, mean, I can ask her and reach out to her and she may have some resources because she 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 does it for a living so i can reach out and i'm sure she some resources. So, Mark, I'll stay up with you uh, sometime next week. Mark, yeah, this is Dan. Oh, hi. Yeah, so I was an instructional designer for like 11 years. And, uh, you know, when you design courses and instructions, I think first step is to, to understand your audience, know your audience, and like kind of do a little research about the people you're going to teach. I think that will make a huge difference in how you design your course because people, uh, you need to know whether they're beginners or somewhere in the middle or if they have advanced. I think that would be the first step. I would say talk to the people that you're going to teach what they're looking for. Um, uh, I mean, that would be my first step. 
And then based on the answers that they give, you know, how much Python they know, how much, you know, machine learning they know, those kind of stuff, that can kind of give you a, an idea about where they're coming from. And then you design your courses based on that. So definitely the first step is talking to the people that give you a lot of answers for sure. Oh, that's super helpful. Yeah. And that give give further context and also yeah. before this happens, I'm doing oh go ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What happens is most people jump into the content before even reaching out to the audience. I mean, I mean, I I've taken a lot of data science courses. Some are good, some are just so advanced, and some are like in between. Partly because, you know, this is I'm talking about MOOCs over here, you know, the the like Coursera, Udacity, and they have this set way of doing teaching classes, right? And and you take it and, and the audience are like so big and vast, like you know, you have beginners and you know, advanced, and the beginners find it's too hard, the advanced people find it's too easy, and then the people in between like, you know, finding their way through. So yeah, so coming from an instructional de design perspective, talking to your audience and seeing what they want, it's it's crucial. So that will really help in formulating your courses and your courses might be super successful knowing what they want. So that's that's super helpful. I think you, you hit on the point that I was I'm currently struggling with is that uh, I'm currently mentoring a set of four people. And that's like my first mm -hmm. practice at like doing the teaching and whatnot. And, mm -hmm. you know, a couple of them were like, really beginner new and a couple of them are like really advanced mm -hmm. <laughs> and so yeah, that's a sweet point be between that it's yep. been very challenging it's been some lessons learned on my end but yeah so awesome. this when, is so helpful yeah I, I used to work for a uh digital entertainment company and i am supposed to train we have all this digital entertainment products that come out of the company and and we had to kind of design courses based on technical folks and then based on the end users and stuff like that so end users, they don't want to know the technical jargon. So you got to really kind of change that whole, change the whole technical thing into more end user type of lessons. So, and if it's technical, then of course it'll be more technical, but still it has to make sense to them. So I, I learned the hard way of not just designing courses, not knowing my audience. And, you know, sometimes uh, people don't like the courses you produce and some, sometimes people love it. But uh, yeah, knowing your audience is super critical. Yeah, uh, maybe if I may add, um, so I do, a, I do quite a fair bit of training and all this. Um, but generally what I found to be quite useful uh, is maybe one or two books on classroom management if you're doing classroom style kind of uh, teaching. Um, that's, that's one. Um, the other one is actually, uh, it coincides with what, what I'm currently sort of researching on and that is how people learn uh, cognitive science. Um, so I think it would be good for you to pick up a few. Uh, I I can't remember there was this there was this book with the title How We Learn or something along that line kind. Uh, probably I, I I need a bit more time to search. Uh, if you if you can maybe you can drop me a message on LinkedIn or something. Uh, once I found the book, I can I can share with you. Uh, so that book is pretty good. Uh, in a sense that it actually shares like how we humans actually learn stuff and um it's something you can pick up and even maybe help them with certain uh learning techniques right that is even useful after the class as well uh so um to put it in a nutshell it actually says that we humans we learn differently uh and there's a cycle there's a cycle of picking up and there's a cycle of sort of uh letting the material sort of settle in your mind um, so that's 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 the two sort of phases of learning. 
uh, I, I think it's a pretty interesting book. Yeah. So, so drop me a message on LinkedIn and uh, uh, I can share more with you. Yeah. The other thing, Mark, sorry. The other thing, Mark, you could do, you could design like a small course and then just let people test it. Like you get a few people and let them look at your course and then, you know, they will give you feedback, what they like, what they did not like. And I I did that quite a bit, especially when I was designing training, learning websites and stuff like you can have a bunch of people and these people can come from different groups. They could be the executive team. They could be the uh, the actual people who are going to use the, your training materials. And then the managers, they all will give you different things, say different things. But finally, at the end of the end result will be, who is this course for? Those are the people that you want to target and kind of hone in and make it good, I guess. And Mark, you said that these were um, these were like uh, kind of like newbies a little bit. Uh, for my for my mentees, uh, newbies, but for for this this more formalized course, um, it's relatively new people to the analytics space. Okay. Um, I think something that would, that like really helps just from also some of the resources I've seen just go wild. Um, like, so for example, made with ML, that's like one really, really popular resource. Um, like in the ML space, uh, there's a few others, full stack deep learning and all that. Um, some of the guiding principles I think that are really useful are first off, um, build intuition before you go into jargon so there's this right yeah so like i think a lot of engineers or or technical people but they can sometimes get like you know too much into the details and a lot of times i think where probably new people struggle and where i certainly struggled was being able to place the information into like a concept map or into like a development workflow or things like that. So I would say stop from start from high to low and then frame all your sort of like try to frame your information as much as possible around why. So Eric posted right about in the comments talked about how like he kind of comes back to why. And I think the reality is that for me, like when I'm learning, if he if I have no value if, if there's no like reason for me to know information i will not remember it um so if you can kind of like essentially guide them along the journey of in a way like they're asking themselves why and your content's kind of in your course is providing the answer then i think that will also go a long way towards helping because i see some courses where they just literally copy paste from like the tableau website and i'm like i mean why the hell should they pay for your for material right like they, they are coming to you for a reason. And that reason is probably because they need um, a further sort of like breakdown uh, as to like the content or the problem or the topics that your course is targeting. So I would say like start high, then go low, build the intuition before you go to like code examples um, and try to connect it back to your experience, like working in an industry, right? Because, and I think everyone's had this experience, right? Where like someone puts up a hypothetical example, right? Like, like Sally has asked, you know, Barry for a thousand dollars to do X, Y, Z, and then you split it and you do compound interest and blah, 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 blah. Well, okay. That's great. So once again, they could probably copy paste that kind of textbook example. Uh, but where you could kind of add value is uh, you could, you don't have to do the full details of like stuff that you experienced right at work, right. And DA and all that. Right. Um, but what you could do is you could sort of frame it in a like, you know, here is like, right, the star framework or whatever, right? Here is a situation. Here was what the problem was. 
um, here are the relevant facts, da, 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 right? Like, but weave those sort of concepts in. Um, two books I think that do a really good job of that. Now, let me just walk back to my like library are actually like business case study books because they're really good at those kinds of like building those stories such that you have a problem to solve. Um, so one of them is case, um, in point. case in point. Yeah. yeah. And then the other one is the case study handbook from elite or it's the HBR one, Harvard, the, no, the Harvard business school one. Um, I think those two are like really good examples of like stories and how they sort of like frame stuff up. So I think, yeah, I think those would be my like three pieces of advice. You definitely don't want to do something like generic that people have seen a million times. And like the best way to make it not generic is to incorporate your own sort of experiences and your whys, especially around why that information is important, right? Why is it important to know a Z test? Why is it important to understand the distribution? Um, you know, why is it important to make sure that your data is clean? And you can pull in like real examples, right? If your data is not clean, if you have bias in the data set, well, you know, that's how you get banks that lend out loans on different interest, interest rates, depending on the color of the receiver, right? Like that's something that people can kind of relate to like, oh shit, this is like really not good. So yeah. This is all so helpful, everyone. This is, this is really great. Um, yeah, just try and jump into new things and, and learn as I go. <laughs> Right on, man. Hey, let's go ahead and wrap it up. Uh, great questions today. Great session. Thank you guys for joining in. Thank you for sticking around almost two hours uh, and shout out to everybody that's been uh, watching on LinkedIn and, and YouTube and everything. Uh, don't forget to tune into the episode I released today with David Benjamin. It's all about cracking complexity. His book is um, it's a great book. And if you have the uh, Audible premium membership, whatever it is, it's available for free on that. So definitely go get that book. Uh, and then also did an episode earlier this week with or lentioner that's going to be released next week so uh, definitely go ahead and uh, tune into that guys take care have a good rest of the evening remember my friends you've got one life on this planet why not try to do something big cheers everyone <laughs>